Well, welcome to the Real Life Real People podcast. Yes, here's your host again, Rob Elliott. We have a very, very unique guest here today. His name is Alfred Zacchino. He's from New York in America. He's a philanthropist. He's the president of an investment company. He's a baseball fan. He likes a little bit of soccer or football for our UK people. But overall, he's very passionate about what he does. He loves giving back. Welcome to the show, Alfred. Thank you, Rob, for having me. Appreciate it. Mate, it's awesome. It's awesome. I see uh, you're actually on the other side of America as we're recording. You're over in California, you were saying. Today I was in California. Well, I am in California. Yesterday I was in New York. You are I'm getting your New York. <laughs> well, you were saying before when we were uh, chatting that you grew up in New York with a few brothers. Is that That's correct? Yeah. If anybody has heard of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, yeah. uh, Brooklyn, New York City, yeah. uh, it's just outside of New York City by 20 minutes. Yep. And uh, youngest is six boys. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom, I don't know how she did. I look back today, any mom who has six boys, <laughs> what a fighter she was. Yep. And then uh, same mom and dad. And uh, but yeah, Brooklyn is my roots. And yeah. uh, growing up in welfare and poverty is where it all began. Yes, yeah, so it was a t- it was a tough upbringing. Absolutely. Um, you know, when my mom was a waitress, my dad, a mason, like working for the transit authority. Yep. And then, uh, and then as an elevator repairman, and you wonder, well, how do you afford just feeding a family of six boys and oh. starting trouble all the time? You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I gather you knew the streets of Brooklyn pretty well. Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, my, uh, my school in Brooklyn, if I drive back and I look at it today, I'm like, it doesn't look like a school. It, it fits 3000 people and it looks more like a prison. Because yeah. barbed wire fences around it. Yeah. And then I take a look and uh, my high school as, as a kid, as a teenager was since condemned um, wow. uh, years ago. Yeah. So it was a pretty bad neighborhood. And uh, that would have made you tough when it came to toughened you up in business later in life, I'd say, looking back now. Yeah, the one thing you can't do is, uh, the one thing you can't learn in a classroom is street smarts. Yes. Right. Speaking so, of a classroom, did you uh, go straight into business or did you study when you got to leave school? Well, right after school, I played baseball for a couple of years. Okay. I was luckily, lucky enough to uh, go into Dominican Republic and play there during the winter uh, and I was at the age of 18. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then could not go much further. Yep. Uh, and then I said, hey, I have to get a real job. <laughs> I didn't play anymore for a living. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I was given a couple of unique job opportunities. One of them had to do with the fire department, city of New York. Yes. Which I was always into and fascinated yep. by fire and water. And the other one had to do with airplanes, and I chose airplanes. Yeah. So uh, were you flying them or were you directing them around the skies? I uh, somehow, someway, barely graduating high school, right? I think I graduated high school with like a D average. (laughs) But uh, I found myself in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which is probably why the Brooklyn accent isn't here today, unless I'm angry. Then it comes out. I was wondering where that was. Oh. I could park the car at the bar, you know. <laughs> hey, what are you doing, Tommy? You know. <laughs> so, uh, be, being an air traffic controller, I went to Oklahoma City uh, under the FAA and somehow graduated with honors. 
first time in my life. Obviously, I told him my high school averages. Mm. And uh, I got to choose where I wanted to be. I chose New York City and became an air traffic controller in the, one of the busier airspaces in the world, Kennedy Tower, JFK Airport. Wow. And uh, thinking, if you look back at that, you must have had some very uh, stressful times where you've just gone, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to get these people down safe when there's just too many planes, there's a storm coming in? If you look back now, how did you do it internally? How did you get yourself focused on getting those people Rob, down or up? Rob, I'm still trying to figure it out why the FAA entrusted a 20-year-old to talk to airplanes in the sky. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I barely graduated high school and I have these lives in my hand. So look, I look at it as from the heart. I, it was realized as at a young age that I love to give. And I looked at every airplane and every passenger inside that airplane as they need to be safe. Yep. So you take it really seriously. Took a lot of pride in my, in my job mm -hmm. as a traffic controller. Um, when speaking to 30 airplanes at a time, you know, I'll give you like, I remember the call signs today. Yeah. Uh, whether it was uh, like South African Airlines, yeah. the air traffic sign for South African Airlines is Springbok. And it was Springbok 202 Heavy, yeah. a 747. I still remember all the flight numbers. To Australia, I'm trying to remember the Qantas. Uh, QI. Yeah. And the Concorde was around yeah. at that time. But yeah, I did that up until uh, my early 30s, uh, yeah. over, just over 13 years on position mm. and never had a near miss. You know, I still wonder today why they call it a near miss. They nearly missed, didn't they hit? Yeah. Right? Shouldn't it be a near hit? I don't know. But I never had one of those. Mm. Uh, but some traumatizing moments. Yeah. Some of them had to do with the Concorde, actually. Yes. Really? Yeah, yeah. Didn't want Couldn't to see the runway. He's landing runway 22 left at Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, that was Speedbird, British Airways. Speedbird 1 or 2 heavy. Speedbird 2 heavy uh, is like runway 22 left, clear to land. Yeah. And uh, he had missed the runway and the clouds were below the control tower. So it's called walks off where you couldn't see anything out the window. You're reliant on radar. The pilot, the pilot did not tell me he was, he missed the runway and he just made a massive left turn. And boy, oh boy, did we feel that in the tower. Wow. You know, the Concorde. So. But for the, for the most part, probably the best job anyone, any human being can ever have mm. is being an air traffic controller. You learn so much yeah, and, and how to deal with situations and how to pivot, multitask, yeah. and speak uh, to all these different languages, speak through all these different language barriers yeah. through that one universal language of being an air traffic controller. Wow. So what made you hang up the goggles? Well, just after 9-11, um, I, uh, I, I pivoted from being an air traffic controller. Mm. I did not, uh, not being in a control tower anymore. Mm. I, I left the FAA mm. uh, on an early retirement yep. and then moved on to New York City, which was my dream as a child in Brooklyn. I would look at New York City as almost like in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, like that's the land of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> How can I make it there? Yeah. 
and uh, <clears throat> went into New York City uh, and started surrounding myself with people who were better than me, older, wiser, healthier, happier, definitely more educated. And <laughs> the list goes on and on. Education, they say, Dan, it doesn't always equal knowledge. This is true. Yeah. It's true. But, you know, call it on-the-job training for yeah. the people that didn't have the education. You know, I, I, I would rather learn in real time in the real field from people around me mm. who have already made a bunch of mistakes. Yep. When I make my mistakes, I could just react to it in real time, in real life. Yeah. And, and you know, implement whatever strategies, techniques, mm. uh, work traits, work ethics yep. to better myself. Mm. And I've been doing this now, it's upwards of 20, almost 20 years uh, evolving about 15 years ago, Sumerian group. Yeah. Uh, we began making investments and got into private equity, venture capital investments, mm. and um, uh, stayed diversified. And uh, time went on, but time flies. It's crazy. It's almost 20 years ago since the transition of being an air traffic controller. So is, we're now that if we look at air traffic control school and now in Sumerian group, is there one or two people that stand out that when you look back now had a big influence over you, apart from your parents, who have sort of, you go back now and you go, you know what, at the time I didn't know what they were teaching me, but now, wow, it made you know, a big difference. Yeah, and so I'm one in the world, and as an example, where if I'm in a meeting today, yeah. I really don't want to learn of your successes or understand your successes, I would rather speak of your failures mm. and what you did wrong, yep. because that's how, in my opinion, you learn more, yep. right? It also creates a challenge. You're able to challenge yourself. Well, you failed at that. I yep. understand why you failed at that, because I'm gonna to continue to fail. We're all gonna to continue to fail, right? But what defines who we are today is how you pick yourself up from a failure. Yes. Right. When something goes wrong, when something didn't go according to plan or a textbook, that defines us who we are today. Right. Yes. So I remember that transition and uh, you mentioned somebody influential to me mm. to that end. And I, um, the people who came to my mind were people who said, how are you going to go from an air traffic controller to being in private equity? The same people I'm, I don't say the same people, but yeah. a different audience in Brooklyn, you barely graduated high school. How are you going to become an air traffic controller? Yeah. Why would the government want you? Right? That's, that's like food. I, oxygen. I hate it. It's oxygen. Yeah. Let me show you. And so I, I, I look at those people that drive me and those people who I can learn from. Mm -hmm. And that's what has... Uh, you know, been the driver and being able to take this path, this diversified life that and the journey continues. So when you look at Sumerian Group, hypothetically with uh, investing, not every investment goes good. Some go gangbusters, you make a lot of money, others go south very quick. How do you handle it when you put a lot of money into something and it tanks? I will take a walk to the bridge and jump off. Now I'm only kidding. That's a joke. I know I it is. Never do that. Yes. I'm only kidding. 
Um, it is very difficult. You see, I, I treat my relationships, call it LPs, limited partners, co-investors. I treat everybody else's money as my own. True. Yeah. And if something's going wrong in a deal, I can't, I honestly can't sleep at night. Yeah. I want to fix it. I want to put things in place to better a situation, hmm. which is a blessing and a curse, right? I've had things go wrong. And one of them, what a storied organization, a New York Yankees organization, many, many, many years ago. And I went to those who entrusted me at the New York Yankees and Major League Baseball, who gave me a license to do something. And I said, I'm going to fix this. Hmm. I'm going to uh, rise up and improve upon what once was and make it even better than what you anticipated and expected. Yeah. Those are words. Then you got to execute on it. Sometimes it could take years. Yeah. Right. So that's a good question, Rob. Um, but it's a case by case basis. I'm very, very careful about when and where to place monies. Um, the one piece of advice I would give to the audience of those who are either making investments or investing themselves or looking for investors is learn from the mistakes of others. When you know, see, or feel something that doesn't seem right, listen. Listen to the universe. It's not going to talk to you, but you might feel it here, here, or here Say. Something's just not right. Have you ever driven down the road in Australia or in the UK or those in America, wherever, and there's a fork in the road, right? And your mind and body is saying, yeah, I'm going to bear left here because that's where my mind is, body is telling me to go. Yes. And you end up bearing right. Yeah. Like, and you go right and you're like, why did I do this? I just made the wrong turn. Yeah. Something as simple as driving, just listen. Yeah. Pay attention to the road in front of you, but but make sure you know you listen to any road travel, whether it's on, you know in a car on a road or in any investment or dealing that you're doing. I remember as a young fellow sitting at a T intersection at the lights. I think I'd had my license probably 12 months. The normal young fellow's car, you know, music up and all that. The lights were red. They went green. And normally, most young guys hit the accelerator and off you go, because I was the first car. Lights went green. And I don't know what it was, but my gut said, don't hit the accelerator. And I didn't. And a truck went straight through the red light. Wow. And I just went, from that day on, I've gone, you know what? Don't listen to this, my head. Listen to your gut, because that's the true north, as you call it. Where did that come from, Rob? It's, that wasn't sitting in your gut. It was something up here. Yeah. Right, it's an energy. It's a frequency of sorts mm. that came into your body, which is one of the reasons why you're here today. Yeah, look, I, I'm a strong believer, like you are, that you ask, you put the question out there. It will come if you open your ears and eyes. Yes. If you don't ask, you close your ears and eyes. Nothing ever happens. Yes. So you've now you're in Samarian Group. You do a lot of investments. You do. You talk to a lot of high-end people. What I'm seeing is two groups of companies in the world. The ones that take the money, make a lot of money and give it back to their shareholders. And the Dow Jones and the Natsik and all them reward them because you know they've got great returns and great everything. And then you've got other companies that look at social capital. 
that look at giving back to the community and back to the world. Do you see that is starting to increase where companies look at social return as well as net return? Or do you see them, especially after COVID, concentrating more on just getting the dollars back to their uh, investors? Um, great question. Um, I've been watching this closely for a really long time. Yes. And one of the things that have motivated me into this in a current venture that's going on is exactly in that subject matter that you're talking about. You know, I, I was able to recognize that, you know, my, my brothers and my family, um, as a kid, mm. if, he, if he had $20, he would give away 15 of it and keep five for himself, yeah. you know? Um, it's not the smartest thing to do in business, right? But you should always have some sort of give because to me, the more you give, the more you receive, but don't expect to receive. Give no. out of your heart, right? Um, in looking at the dealings, and, and those most successful entrepreneurs out there, and we all know who they are worldwide, okay? I don't wanna say any names or call anybody out, no. right? But, or else my Brooklyn accent might start coming out. <laughs> <laughs> but why is it that you have to make $10 billion before you give away $2 billion, right? Because the likelihood is that if you were some major person of some major charity, most of the time you're giving that money into that charity is a likelihood that your foundation or charity and name is responsible for that charity when it comes to that amount of capital. True. A la first name Bill. Hmm. Last name starts with a G or or you know who's a who are amazing philanthropists and really, really good people. I don't want to take anything away from any of those who do good. But when you see in the news, hey, commitment to give away a billion dollars, that's a tax benefit. Yes. Right? They are getting the advice of very high powered law firms and very high powered accounting firms to say, hey, if you give away that billion dollars, you'll pay that much less in taxes. Hmm. It's a self-benefit. Yes. What I wanna see more of are people that keep charity and philanthropy as part of any and every business model as you're making the money. Yes. Right? So as you earn, give. Yes. Buy one, give one. Mm. Match me, match that. Right? So we don't see this enough. Yeah. And we need to see more of it. And, um, you know, donating money is great. Don't get me wrong. There's massive amount of charities out there and a massive amount of people in need. If you look here, because of COVID-19 in America, the crime rate and the uh, supermarkets, like people stealing food, just food from supermarkets yeah. is, you don't want to know above, off the charts. I was in New York City two days ago. Yeah. And I'm in a, a pharmacy, a very well-known pharmacy, and I go to the toothpaste section because I need a toothpaste. There wasn't yeah. any. And I went to the store manager, like, what's going on? I need toothpaste. They had it locked away because people were coming in stealing toothpaste where they couldn't even keep it on the shelves. Isn't that crazy? Uh, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Like, unlike you, I've been privileged to know people who give and tell everyone. And you know what makes me good when I find out 
someone that I know who's very well off, very successful, gives, and no one ever knows what they do. Mm-hmm. And you you always find out when you when you're in that field. So the pandemic, America, purely by size and density, has been like Europe, like London. It's especially in the big towns, really suffered. It's really doing it tougher than we're privileged in Australia. We don't have the density of what you guys have. We're spread out. Uh, you know, we've only got 25 million people in a continent that's bigger than America. So, you know, we're privileged. Look at that in a town, a city. When I saw you before, you said that you looked at that and you've now partnered with another company in a products to do with hand sanitizer called H21. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Did you get the support when you put it first put it up and said, hi, guys, I need some money to make this happen? And what is the core beliefs behind that? Because anyone can go make hand sanitizer and sell it and make money. But you're doing something very different that no one else in the market's doing that I know of. Yeah, and your last two points combine into one. And thank you for bringing it up because when it comes to the start of this pandemic, I was looking at, well, what are we going to do next? Hmm. And I was trying, I looked at the biggest companies in the world or in the country, in the USA, you know, when you say, hey, over 350 million people living here in the USA, the biggest company who produced the hand sanitizer called Purell, yep. I found out very early on that during the pandemic, they're going to stop servicing their retail clients meaning the pharmacies and pharmacies and supermarkets yeah. that we rely on to get our consumer goods during times of need, Purell was turning them away to service their commercial clients. So yeah. those who have supported, I don't know if you heard of Purell abroad, but yeah. they're the big one, right? They turned away uh, the retail, those day-to-day customers and focused on their commercial clients. And so I said, look, there's a real need here. I realized what their capacity was. The hand sanitizer business at the start of the pandemic, now the business decision was it's a $2 billion industry globally. Today, seven, eight months later, the hand sanitizer industry is a $15 billion industry over 7X. And it's here to stay. And in five years, it's estimated to be a $25 billion industry. So that was the business sense. Then I looked at the margins. Yeah. And the margins of hand sanitizer are pretty good. Yes. And I said, look, we could afford to do a buy one, give one here. And and I and I have it I have it here. Actually, I'm gonna put hand sanitizer on my hands right now, right? Yeah. But um <laughs> the 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 scent here is um the, the ingredients in here, organic lavender, yeah. tea tree oil. Vitamin E, aloe vera, essential oils mixed with high quality, like a, a, a filtered alcohol. Yep. And blended to a point where there's no stickiness, there's no residue. I smell my hands right now and it smells like lavender. Oh, some of the early ones we got around in our work were horrible. Smelled like tequila, right? Yeah, I wish it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> True. <laughs> Bad night out, right? Yeah, so all like that, that, yeah. So what we have with this, it, it's called H21, right? Um, so Sumerian Group, a lead investor, yeah. we formed another company, you know, the corporate mm. rollout of, of what we need to do so that we can 
execute on the funding of this, mm. the buy one, give one mm. model. The margins were great. Yep. But our first tens of thousands of bottles, yeah. we didn't sell. We gave them away to charity. Yep. Certain sales were happening along the way, but you need to execute on the buy one, give one, or else as a company, we'll fall down. You can't just keep giving away. You need the buy to continue to happen in order to give. Yeah, that's I will give one through and through. Basic right? economics. Yes, and uh, and and we have it built into e-commerce, right? Mm -hmm. Where somebody goes on Amazon, Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. where they go in, they they buy six, we'll give away six. Mm -hmm. um, but if somebody buys them in a retail shop or store or pharmacy, where we have also sold our product. You can't because they, they really press you. Like the margins aren't there yeah. if you buy it in your local popular pharmacy or supermarket. Your margins are razor thin yeah. when it comes to selling products through through supermarkets. And, um, and then one of the challenges here is we were restricted from a lot of things. You know, all these other brands were out there. So there were restrictions about advertising and what we could say and not say. So we strictly had to roll this out through word of mouth. And we ended up bringing some of our most strongest, powerful relationships in the world to stand behind us, yep. knowing our mission. And so, and so how's it going now? Today, it's great. Just uh, day before yesterday, uh, we've heard of the New York Yankees organization. Yes. Um, their community advisor, Ray Negron, and their third baseman, Gio Urshela, and the New York Yankees shortstop, Gleyber Torres. Yep have um, stood behind uh, the H21 hand sanitizer. Yes. Um, in return, we have donated in the name of the New York Yankees and then the family name of Gio Ursula and Leibach Torres. One of them, um, Gio is from Colombia. Yes. So we donated 36,000 bottles of H21 yeah. to his own country in Colombia where they, they very much need it. Yes. Played by Torres, we donated 36,000 bottles in his name to his home country in Venezuela. So uh, reciprocating, we, we're utilizing our strategic relationships, yep. our heart, our mind, and our business sense to continue to have a good company. We, we have 15 people working day to day on our team. So we have 15 new jobs yep. of people who other, otherwise would not have been working. And we have tens of thousands of families that we're helping in some capacity by making them safe at home or safe at work through our goods. I would say secretly, some of your competitors would have been hoping you failed because in industry terms, you are now an officially a disruptor because yeah. you're doing something that is challenging the norm is uh, they, they now got to look at it and go, well, you know, people expect people to give back. It's not just all about sales and, uh, they they won't, wouldn't like what you're doing. No. And here we come. Because watch us come, watch yeah. us grow. Because we will continue to sell. We will continue to give. And it's been part of our DNA day one. Right? Now, yeah. they could change it too. Yeah. Right? They could also do buy one, give one. Go ahead. You probably should have. Yeah. But this is where we began. And audience audiences across the world, people, businesses, organizations need to know our DNA, where we began day one yeah. with philanthropy in mind, righteousness, 
and the ability to lead by example, yeah. not only for our company, this company, but, but for, for other companies along the way. When I've been involved and I saw him in the charities in Australia, I always worked on the theory of mutually beneficial. If I went to ask someone, say Sumerian group, and I say, look, I need $10,000 to help fund this, a lot of people just stop with that. And I used to go, no, if I, you give me $10,000, I can do this, this, and this for you. So when the company saw the benefit as well to themselves, as well as to the good of what they're doing, to me, I can get money out of anybody as long as I do work on the mutually beneficial. With the New York Yankees, was that a hard nut to crack or did they come to you or how did you, because I mean, baseball is still a business. It might be, it's a multi-million dollar business. They've still got bills to pay. They've still got all those things to pay. And these guys, they're well paid themselves. Most of the uh, baseballers. How did, what angle did you take with them or how easy was it or hard to get that over the line to get them to endorse what you're doing? Well, look, I've been working closely with the uh, Hank Steinbrenner who had passed away in the last, uh, you know, during COVID. Yep. Uh, I know him for, I guess, almost 15 years now. Mm -hmm. um, their community advisor, Ray Negron. I've met others from the, uh, from the Steinbrenner family. Yep. I love the fact that the Yankees make bets on underdogs, that although they're the favorite story franchise, arguably the first or second most story franchise in the world yes. or in history, um, that they've been giving back. It's been part of their DNA. Yes. Um, I do work with, um, with the organization and those inside the organization that give every December yep. for holiday gifts in the Bronx. The, the home stadium is in the Bronx and it's, it's a tough neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Uh, just two months ago, I was at a high school, a correction of elementary school yeah. uh, with grades, you know, young, young kids, six, seven, eight year olds in the middle of projects. And while we're inside, we're giving away some of these into the school system. I heard gunshots across the way, right? So I was in there with a, with uh, Raina Gron, an exec who, who's with the Yankees and is a, is a great philanthropist. Um, and we were like, man, you know, we should be doing this all year long, you know, not only in colder weather or November, December, we typically give away Christmas gifts, Hanukkah mm -hmm. gifts, holiday gifts to yeah. two kids in the Bronx that otherwise might not have a Christmas. Yes. Um, and we would typically do it November, December each year. This year allows us to give all year round. Yeah. Right? January, February, March, April, May. And it's not a gift to put a smile on a kid's face. It's something to literally keep you and your family safe. So you, are you gonna stop with hand, hand sanitizer or are you going to uh, look for some other opportunities? Maybe we, to shake it up a bit. Yeah, we will always welcome, you know, new opportunities. You know, it all starts where that light bulb goes on. You know, this worked out in such a way, let's say it's not the most sexiest idea nah. in the world. You know, H2O, you know, we tried to make it sexy. H2O, water, essential. Yes. And then one, one human family. Yeah. Right. So we tried to stay creative and, and make it fun. Yes. In, in a, in a, at a time when there isn't not a whole lot of fun going on in the USA and across the world. So Alfred, if you were walking back down through Brooklyn now and you ran into a 15 year old, Alfred, 
and he looked up at you and the typical 15 year old kid growing up in the uh, in you know New York you know looked up and you said what's your problem man what would you say to you if you ran into you and you're 15 years old I say who do you think you're talking to <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, I would say it starts out how I got out of Brooklyn, right? Because you either, my neighborhood, you either die between the ages of 13 and 17 when I was a kid, mm. no exaggeration here, but eight, maybe nine of my childhood friends died mm. some way. They were either jumped, killed, something drug related or whatever, right? Um, so you are the company you keep. True. So you know, you know this. Yeah. So that 15-year-old, I'd say, look at your immediate surroundings. When you're 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, and even 50, sometimes people are wanting to know who they are. What is my identity? Yeah. Who am I? Right? And my message to whether 15 or 50 is take a look at the five people closest to you. Yes. And that's a direct reflection of you. True. Is that the person you want to be? And pause and say, hey, who are those five people? Usually at that age, at a young age, it's my mom and or my dad, yeah. my brother, my sister, my uncle, whatever. Um, but how you get out is by surrounding yourself with people who are what I said at the outset, older, wiser, healthier, happier, more educated, and it goes on and on. Yeah. Um, so I would say to that kid, there's no age to study what your surroundings are and who you are. Hmm. Um, that in combination with staying away from drugs. Yep. Okay. You got to stay away at a young age unless socially and of age alcohol, right? Uh, I was 21 years old before I had my first alcoholic drink. Yeah. And, um, you know, drugs was nowhere near me. I, I think on Wednesday nights as a kid, I used to have a wine cooler night yeah. with a few of my friends. And, um, that combination, that messaging is what I would pay forward to others. Even, you know, today it's, I go back to Brooklyn typically to eat. Yep. This is not the same as it was, but the food there is still amazing. Yeah. Uh, and some of those same restaurants remain open and luncheon places remain open. And I see kids who I grew up with and it's like, you either stay there or you get out of there. Yeah. And you can get out by just changing your surroundings and surrounding yourself with the right people. And how true. Thinking about food, I know my favorite restaurant in New York. Uh, oh yeah, I've got, I've got a favorite one I've always gone to, but I'm gonna ask you, if you're back home with your family and friends and someone said, let's go out for dinner, Manhattan, Brooklyn, where would Alfred go? It depends on the dish. Well, what's your, now your favorite? Well, you had, everyone's got a couple of favorites. It's Friday sure. night, you're chilled, you want to go out and relax. For the, where do you go? Because there's people going to be listening to this thing and write it down. So, absolutely. And let's hope you get a free feed out of it. If anybody likes the best pork chop they've ever had in their life, yep. Which is thick cut. And remember, when you order it, you have to slice it thin. Yep. 
Pork chop from Valbella, V-A-L-B-E-L-L-A, on 53rd Street and Madison. Yes. The best I've had in my life. It's made and mixed with cherry peppers. Yep. And and in a sauce with like these thinly sliced potatoes. Yeah. That is just awesome. It's this big, Mm -hmm. but you'll eat the whole thing because you have to. You know, that's for that dish, right? Yeah. Might also. For fish or for like... For an order of, of you know, baked clams, uh, Nino's Italian restaurant is on First Avenue and 72nd Street, Nino. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows Nino. He has some of the biggest names over the last many decades. Mm. You go there for Italian food. For, for an order of really good calamari, the best in all of New York City is Nello. Yeah. N-E-L-L-O. Uh, my favorite Italian food. Grew up as an Italian from Brooklyn, right? But yes, yes. Yeah, that had to be your mom's. Oh, my mom, nothing like mom. Sunday. <laughs> my. But, uh, yeah. There's so many. It depends on the dish. But you know what? Send me a message on my Instagram. Yep. Anybody. And I'm, I'm going to respond to it. You tell me your favorite dish and I will not let you down. I'll tell you the best restaurant to go to in New York City. So if we're going out for a feed with pork chops and I said, mate, it's you and four people at the table, you can invite anybody. Exactly right. Who would you invite? Anyone uh, in the world, dead or alive? It's, it's uh, who would I invite? I like diversity. Yep. So I would invite um, my mentor, Charlie Irish, yeah. who I learned so much from. He's no longer with us today. Yeah. Um, I would invite uh, Robert Wolf, who is the former chairman of UBS. I share my office with him. And when I screw up, he doesn't give a shit. Like he, he yells at me. Yeah. He's like, Alfred, shut the bleep up. You did this wrong. Like he puts me in my place. We all made one of them. Absolutely. Um, you know, just a, uh, a couple nights ago, I met, are you true that if you think it, it will come. So my favorite childhood actress was Brooke Shields. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember her. She did a couple of sh- movies in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. So three nights ago, you know, I was with her in New York City. I, I had a drink with her. She is uh, heavily into COVID nineteen and yeah. and in support of what we're doing. Beautiful, right? I would invite one of the storied relationships I have. You know, I know a couple of people who, who own sports franchises. Mm. I'd invite uh, His Excellency Hassan, who, who, I, who I report to for the FIFA World Cup 2022, mm. because he's such a wonderful human being. He's caring, he leads from the heart. Yeah. He is the, the, the epitome of someone genuine and nice. Mm. When you see him in, in an interview, he could be very intimidating. Yeah. He speaks five languages, but in a in a setting at a table, he is so warm, comforting, and welcoming, like a brother. Many movie stars and many uh, rock stars are the same on stage. They're playing a character. Politicians are the same. I've known many, many in Australia. In front of the camera, they're playing a character. As soon as that lights off or that band stops playing, then you see the real person. 
Exactly right. And that's where brotherhood comes from. And, and his right hand, his name is Ahmad. And I would invite him to. So I don't know if I can have a table of five. I may have to close down the restaurant. So many people have been influential. Uh, you know, I'd also invite a stranger from the street to yeah. say, hey, this is so unique. It's once in a lifetime. Sit with us. Right? So my final question for you today is, I mean, Godspeed when America and New York comes out of the COVID as we appear to be coming out of it in Australia. And you know, people looking in business and in life going, what do I do now? How do we, you know, pull ourselves up? We all pull ourselves up. We don't want to hand out. We've got to get it there ourselves. What would you say to business when they turn around and say to you, man, where to? What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? Pace yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, people think that, okay, the vaccine comes out. Now it's going to be life back to normal. Never. This is going to take a long time to get through. Hmm. Um, the worst is yet to come here in the States. It is, yeah. All these people that have lost their jobs. And the fact that I'm telling you, like the supermarkets are being robbed of their food. Hmm. There are people that have are going off the deep end. Yes. And, the, you know, the worst is, is yet to come. There needs to be here in the States, the stimulus it needs to be another stimulus check. It's, hmm. it's a shame that. It keeps getting delayed out of D.C. What, what happened with the presidency, the latest presidency? We've, had, uh, we've been blessed in Australia that 99% of the time, the two parties, as we, like you, have two parties that control majority of it, they basically work together. They haven't blocked anything, one side or the other, and they've, they've still disagreed, but when it had to happen, they put their uh, differences aside and... Uh, we're working through it. So we've been very lucky that way. Yeah. And it's great that you have that in, in your system over there, you know, Not perfect, but it's pretty good. I, I, I've always loved those. I need to get out there. Um, one of these days I'll come visit you. No worries. We'll have a beer at the fortune of war on the rocks. So, you know, that won't be a problem. <laughs> but, you know, back to the advice to a businessman is stay persistent, stay resilient, um, rise up. Yeah. It's hard. It's even look me. I've been down. Depends on the day. You've been down. We yeah. all know this, right? But emanate energies that are going to influence and motivate others. Yes. Instead of complaining, and I'm not sure how bad it is in Australia or in the UK, but instead of complaining or pointing a finger, let's channel those same energies towards something good. Yes and watch what happens, right? Oh, yeah. There's so much in the news today where it's put on the news. It's one negative event after another. And I get it, we're humans and we're drawn to negatives, unfortunately, right? But if you can just channel those energies toward being down and mm. rise up and emanate good, powerful energies Smart. towards something good, great things will happen. It will, mate. So don't feel down, you know, rise up and great things will happen. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I love it that you've, uh, you've backed yourself and you're doing something with the, your product. For those who want to know more, I will put the links to the product on your uh, the show notes, uh, both on audio and YouTube. Fantastic listening to you, mate. You stay very safe, uh, stay healthy. And as I say to everyone, have a groovy day. Thank you so much, Rob.